Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 222nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jonathan Cutton. John is the founder of Cutton Wealth Management, a hybrid RIA headquartered on Long Island, New York, that manages over $3 billion for about 5,500 clients. What's unique about John, though, is that as his firm grew to the point where it became necessary to separate client service from leadership and operation of the business, John didn't hire a COO to run the firm and instead made a deliberate decision to move himself away from a client-facing role of working in the business so that he could spend all of his time working on the business and developing its systems and culture instead. In this episode, we talk in depth about how John carved out three distinct roles within his firm that allows employees to focus solely on what they're good at, creating both superior results and clarity around responsibilities within the firm itself. Why John has found that the business is growing better by getting his advisors completely out of the prospecting business and focused on delivering an amazing client experience, and how John has powered the growth of the firm by separately building a CPA referral program to bring in prospects that his advisors then closed by leveraging the borrowed trust they received from those CPA referrals. We also talk about the way the entrepreneurial itch influenced John's decision to leave his salaried management role at Ameriprise and start his own practice. How once John achieved financial security for himself and his family, his focus and drive shifted towards helping people within his organization get what they want out of life. How John has carried lessons that he learned early on around fostering a strong culture and developing leaders throughout his career. And the woody-woofy question of what do you want for yourself that John has found to be the most effective way to build both loyalty and a culture that really cares about and values the people within the organization. And be certain to listen to the end where John shares the challenges that come with along the way of scaling an advisory firm by nearly 100x from $30 million to $3 billion over the past 20 years. Why John felt it was necessary to transition the firm to a vision-based culture that didn't require him to make every key decision. How John learned that having integrity still isn't a substitute for also having key legal agreements in place after a key partner broke up with the firm and took away a significant segment of clients and revenue. And the five levels of leadership that John tries to cultivate in all the leaders of the firm, including himself, as he looks to continue growing in the decade to come. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jonathan Cutton. Welcome, Jonathan Cutton, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Really excited to be here. And I've I've got to share, not to start by brown nosing, but I am a big fan and have been uh, an admirer from afar for quite some time. So when you had reached out and asked me to be a guest, I was really, really flattered and very excited to be on your show here today. Oh, awesome. I, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm excited you were willing to to join us as well and and share some of your your story and your journey. You know, I had I had first learned about your your background a little ways back in one of the trade publications talking about your decision very early on in your firm to move away from the clients and into the the running building kind of scaling growing the business itself and you know I feel like this is a conversation that is certainly coming up more in our advisor world as as advisory firms grow I think particularly the the AUM model the recurring revenue model like you can 
you know, you can get clients that pay ongoing revenue, hire service-minded advisors to support them. It really allows for the growing and compounding and scaling of a business. If you do that long enough, you get a, a lot of clients, a lot of revenue, a lot of team. It becomes a lot to manage. And, and there are more and more advisory firms that are, are hiring sort of professional management, full-time people in management roles, COOs and the like. But I find for a lot of advisory firms, like they often founders keep going on the client end and they hire the, the, the COO or even sometimes a CEO to, to do the run the business part so that they can stay focused on the, on the client end. And just, I was fascinated hearing your story that like you, you know, you chose the other path, right? You chose the, we get to that fork in the road and, and you chose the other side of the fork of the path. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really fascinated about that decision. And certainly I know it has led to tremendous growth and, and many billions of dollars in our management for the firm. And so while I think there's a lot that any advisor can learn from any of these stories and journeys that we take, I think there's a there's maybe a particular subset of advisors that are are very sort of entrepreneurially enterprise minded. Like they want to build a big a big firm, a big thing. And you, I think, have done that journey really uniquely, at least relative to how it's typically done in the industry. And so I'm just I'm excited to hear that that journey when you make the decision at that fork in the road and and you choose the path that you did and and how that's grown and compounded in the in the years since. Yeah, no, completely really well said, Michael. And I think it describes really where where I am in my career, Sue. I actually stopped working with clients about a decade ago. I think when I when I think back, you know, I, I wish I could say it was purposefully planned, right? So I I started back in the business in '94. I'm 48 years old, so I started right out of college, and I you know, wish I could say, hey, in 1994, you know, I decided what I wanted to be when I grew up was a CEO and spend more time working on the business as opposed to necessarily working in the business. But it wasn't that clear to me, uh, as you can imagine, back then. So. You know, I think it might be helpful if it's okay with you, Mike. Maybe I'll just give you a little bit of my career path, which might help you understand and the listeners understand exactly how I got there. Is that? Yeah, please. Like, let us know what the the journey is. I know you you've essentially been kind of whole career within one large platform, one large firm, but a lot of different hats on that journey. So, so please tell us about the what this path has looked like. So I, I actually went to college at the State University of New York at SUNY Albany, State University of New York in Albany, upstate New York. I live in New York here, not in Long Island, but we are on Long Island is how we say it here as Long Islanders. You know, to make a very long story short, I came from a pretty middle, lower class background. My dad since passed away, but he was a, a salesman, sold electronics. My mom worked part-time as a travel agent. And I thought, I was pretty well-to-do growing up and realized my sophomore year in college that my mom and dad actually claimed bankruptcy. So it made me really, as a 19-year-old, think about finances right, and money. And I was lucky enough to get an internship at what was then IDS Financial Services, which I think you probably remember the old IDS. Yeah, yeah. So before they even went to American Express, financial advisors, which now most of us know as Ameriprise. Yep. You got it. Exactly right. So I think that happened in 95 and I started in 94 and I, I got an internship upstate New York and Albany. And you know, to make a, a very long story short, the gentleman that I interned with was just a great guy. 
here are the things that I could tell you that I remember about him. One was he came into work at around 9.30 or 10 o'clock every morning. He had a gym bag over his shoulder. He drove a Porsche and he actually had a very pretty wife and two really cute kids picture on his desk. And not knowing what I really wanted to do, I thought, man, he would be a pretty good guy to be like. It seemed like a good life. And that's how I decided to get involved in financial planning. Had a really good experience. He painted a really compelling picture when you're uh, doing an in- a college internship. Like, okay, um, this looks like a pretty good life. Yeah, this this would work. This would be good. Little did I know how hard it was, but he he certainly made it look pretty uh, pretty easy. So to fast forward, by the time I graduated college, I was already you know fully licensed. Started right out of college. You know, as an interesting aside, I was actually not offered a job the first time around in the the current area that I lived here in Suffolk County on Long Island and uh, was told I needed some sales experience. And I was told to actually get a job at The Gap back in 94, which I did. I got really Hmm. good at folding shirts, which is still a skill of mine today. If you ever need a crisp fold, I'm your guy for the job. But I was pretty resourceful back then and decided to go apply with the same company, but in a different county called Nassau County. And there I met a gentleman who was ready to hire me. So truth be told, it all worked out and I worked, wound up working, you know, at the location closer to my home, but I was first actually rejected from the job. And fast forward, Michael, you know, I came into a system and a structure, right? Back then, I think IDS and American Express had an amazing training program in how to actually become a financial advisor, learn how to do true comprehensive financial planning and systems and processes. Back then it was mostly cold calling on how to actually build a business. So I was fairly successful my first year in the business. And then I got that proverbial tap on the shoulder and got asked to lead others at the ripe old age of 22 and a half. And I became a training manager. And truly, Michael, you know, I I owe a lot of my career to mentors. So I was blessed to have amazing mentors some of which are still mentors and good personal friends today that really helped me grow as a leader. One of the little known facts, I think, about the firm I grew up in is it really is very much a a culture of leadership and developing leaders. So I spent about six or seven years in a leadership position, went through the ranks, ultimately ran an office. And then after some time, had the opportunity when the firm I work for offered two options where you could either be an employee of the firm or an independent contractor or a franchise advisor. I saw a lot of my buddies and guys and gals that I grew up with in the business that were friends or people I trained and coached. And it seemed like they were having more fun than I was. Their incomes were growing quicker. And I decided you know, to go back full-time in private practice. But I share the story up to that point because that six or seven year period of really being exposed to amazing leaders and learning leadership skills and tactics is what I still attribute today to the growth that we've been able to have and the the business that we've been able to grow is those leadership qualities. So I am curious, just like how exactly does it work to get the 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 tap to become a training manager at like 22 and a half years old? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a pulse and warm breath. <laughs> okay. I, I think if you had a pulse and you had warm breath, I think you became the coveted training manager, which was a fancy way of saying back then you were able to help some other 21-year-olds right out of college go out and, and sit in some of their meetings and help them win some business. I think it contributed a lot 
to my experience, right? Because what I got to do was back then I would probably see, you know, eight or 10 meetings a week for my own clients and prospects, but I'd get to go out and cover eight or 10 meetings a week for other advisors, clients, and prospects. So, you know, I've always said that our business, I'm sure you'd agree, is kind of an activity game, right? The more people you see, the more experience you have, and ultimately, the better you get at ultimately, you know, spotting opportunities, providing advice, seeing trends in certain types of clients. So I look back on those times, you know, really fondly. It strikes me, I think for a lot of types of careers and and professions, you know, there's sort of the proverbial, like, you know, you need 10,000 hours of training or something to really practice and master it. It's not just a rote 10,000 hours. It's, it's kind of 10,000 hours of, of deliberative focus practice where you're, you're training and you're getting feedback and you're trying to improve and get better. And when you just think about that from a sheer time perspective, like 2000 working hours in a year, usually can only do maybe half of that of actual focus work. So like, your 10,000 hours can take 10 years. And and I think it is often true for a lot of advisors. Like it's a good seven to 10 years before you really like, I've hit my stride. I know this cold, I can handle the planning issues and the client issues and the communication, all the stuff that goes with it. And, and one of the things that strikes me about stories like yours and what you just said, you know, when you, when you get put in these situations where my normal pace might have been doing eight to 10 client meetings a week, but then I ended up with another eight to 10 <laughs> client meetings a week because I was sitting in other advisors as well. And like you, you doubled up your time and you got through it in half the time, right? You took 10 years of learning and training and experience and essentially got to double it up and cram it into five years. And so it doesn't surprise me then that, you know, it was six or seven years out that you were suddenly finding yourself at this crossroads saying like, okay, like got this part down, ready for next stage in my career and started looking at, do I want to be an advisor and go out to that, out to that side? Like it, it, to me, it, it paints a powerful picture of, I think, particularly the opportunities for us in our, in our twenties that, that just, not that it's literally about paying your dues. Cause I think that has sort of a pejorative label or connotation around it, but just, this is an experienced business and there's something really powerful about just grinding out the hours of experience and the the more hours you can cram in the the faster you move up the experience curve couldn't agree more as i think back that's where a lot of my growth came right and a lot of things became clear to me about you know kind of the important parts of the business and and how to be successful so you do this stint for 6 or 7 years i guess help me understand like were you were you still building some client base of your own throughout while also doing training manager stuff for other advisors and then had to make a decision like do I keep on a do I want to keep doing half of each or or do I want to go all in in one direction or the other or was there even an evolution as you were going down this training manager road that you got sucked further in the leadership end and had moved further away from direct client building at that point Yes. No, great question. And yeah, I think it, it started with a day a week and slowly turned into, because you know, if you have some success with it, you know, leadership generally wants to get some more of your time, right? So when, when I ultimately left my leadership career, I was running my business on about a day a week and I was running a location the other four back then it was five days because we were working Saturdays as well. Yeah. So it really became more of a full-time leadership role and a very, very part-time financial advisor role. 
Michael, you know, one of the things I wanted to point out, because I think it's important to understand, is, you know, I talked before about having, you know, some amazing leaders. I also had some leaders who weren't very good either, right, that I got to work under or learn from or et cetera. And, you know, what I learned from that is, you know, when the culture was right, when you had the right person in charge of the particular branch and people felt good about what they did and they had the right vision and there was some accountability, but a lot of fun and everyone kind of understood where we were headed and we were all headed, what I like to call Northeast together, man, those environments seem to really drive success. And I can also think of examples of being in cultures under certain leaders where no one felt like they knew where they were headed. No one felt like they were part of a culture that they had a choice and an opinion. And man, those businesses really didn't thrive. And I actually think, you know, that's one of the things that I was able to, you know, kind of understand in my 20s was really what culture is about and how having the right culture breeds success, not only for yourself, but for those around you as well. I just, I like the way that you, that you put that, like we were all heading Northeast together, right? It's like that, that growth chart when it's going well is up into the right to the Northeast direction. So just, you know, you, you build the right culture and get everyone reasonably aligned and, and we're all just kind of heading Northeast together. Yeah. You know, some people call it rowing in the same direction when the culture is right. And that's probably in, in, you know, in my role today, that's what I see my number one priority as is really ensuring that we have, you know, kind of the, the, the fertile soil so that, you know, from our receptionist to our most senior advisor or someone on our executive team, that they have the ecosystem, the tools, the support so that they can become their very best self. So, so I, I want to come back to that when we, when we get all the way forward to today, but I, I kind of want to follow the, the ongoing trail. So, so this first six or seven years ended up being deeply steeped in leadership, you know, some learning about how to, how to train people, how to develop people, what good leadership looks like as you went through leadership and went through various branch offices and, and, and learning opportunities started getting this appreciation for culture and the significance of culture and, and what it means. And then you said you had like, you had gotten to this crossroads where you had to make a decision of whether you wanted to go back out as an advisor. And if so, whether under the employee model or the, the franchise independent model, cause I know American express now Ameriprise has both of those options. So, so tell us about that transition. Like what, what led you to having that as the crossroads and, and what drove your decision about which path to choose? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I think it was really twofold. One is what I would just call the entrepreneurial itch, right? So deep down, I'm an entrepreneur. And I think as I, as I look back, I looked at my leadership career as certainty, right? So it probably goes back to if I laid down in a, in a, <laughs> Uh, on a couch right now, and you did a little psychoanalysis, I think, you know, understanding kind of some of the financial trouble that my mom and dad had, I always valued security from that point forward. So I liked the concept of being a leader, having a guaranteed income and, you know, certain guarantees, and then kind of on the side, right, I could work on growing my business and, and other variable, let's call it compensation. 
So you built it this way because like the leadership role gave you the stable salary. So yeah, I'm doing a little bit of advisory client stuff on the side, but you know, I don't have as much at risk. I got the stable salary. If it doesn't work out, we're okay. And just there was there was some very direct personal financial security for you in in building early that way, even though that meant you had fairly limited time on actually building the client base. Exactly right. And what I realized was I was running a similar size business back then to what most advisors were doing on a full-time basis. And I was actually doing it on one day a week. So why, why I might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, I started to look at that and said, man, what would happen if I actually did this five days a week? I could probably grow a pretty big business there. And I think that that was really kind of an epiphany for me. And I built my confidence level. And as I said, always had a bit of a been, been a bit of a dreamer, and I always have had a bit of a big vision. So, you know, one one of the things my wife teases me about this sometimes, Michael, and I'll go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. I hope that's okay. You read sometimes about successful people, and they generally have very clear visions of where they want to go. Right. So, as I think back, I used to have, and for some of you who might be in your late forties, like I I am. You might remember back in the day when we all had posters hanging on our walls, right? And I had a poster hanging on my wall as a as a teenager, and it was a great big house, right, with a beautiful courtyard, right, if you can think about it, with exotic sports cars, right, right in front of, uh, you know, on the driveway area, and it had a fountain there in the house as well. And, you know, interestingly enough, if you came to my house today, it's not quite as elaborate, by the way, as the poster. And those exotic sports cards don't don't exist as they did in, in that poster. But believe it or not, I've got that same courtyard and there's a fountain there. And it's, you know, very eerily similar to what that actually, you know, looked like back then. So I started to have this vision as I saw in these leadership cultures that I grew up in, some of these really, really great leaders that had followers that just had a ton of confidence in where that leader was taking them. And I, I thought as I, at the time looked at how the employee world was changing some and just kind of the financial services industry was starting to take shape. Some of those benefits of those cultures were starting to change, right? Where it wasn't quite like the old days where leaders could build their own branch or district kind of do things their way it started to become a little bit different than that. And I think I had this vision of building kind of a culture that I would be really proud of and that advisors would want to join and be part of the team and that I, together with them, can help them build something you know better than, than we both could on our own. I'm struck by that and how you're, how you're describing it. So I feel like when, I know when a lot of people talk about visions of businesses or visions of 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 enterprises it's a it's a certain thing they want to do in the marketplace or like a certain product that they want to bring to the market or it's a certain group of people that they're that they're aiming to to serve or it's a certain size of business or reach of enterprise that they want to create and just i'm i'm fascinated that your description of the vision is basically about creating a business with a certain type of culture and the and the culture was the was the vision point for you. I agree. I think that was, you know, as I said, having amazing mentors that made a big difference in my life in that short six or seven year period of time. 
made me want to affect other people, right? And, you know, in, in complete transparency, Michael, I think, you know, there was a phase and I think if we're all honest with ourselves, who, who we think about how we've been able to all in our industry, I think we're really blessed, right? Financial advisors in general, I mean, what an amazing career we're in and the incomes we get to make and the equity in many cases that we get to build is actually absolutely amazing. But I, you know, I, I went through a phase there, Michael, right, where I needed to kind of, I'll say it is get what I needed, right, so that I can kind of check off the boxes so that I could build a business that actually helped me to meet my lifestyle needs, right? So the industry calls it a lifestyle practice these days. I needed to get to a certain point where I said, okay, great, I've got a certain amount of cash flow. I've got a certain quality of life. I've got a certain amount that I save each year for my future. And then really what drives me every day, and I'm really clear on this, clearer than I've ever been of late, is really helping other people get what they want for themselves. And you know what I could share with you is 10 or 15 years ago, where I got my satisfaction from is a lot different than it was five years ago. So I think, I think it changes throughout your life. But really, I personally today get a lot more satisfaction out of helping one of my advisors or one of my staff or business development people grow personally and professionally, attain their goals than I do out of helping you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, one of our clients, retire successfully. Mm-hmm. Not that helping Mr. and Mrs. Smith isn't super important. And that's, you know, that's the work that we do as a firm. And that's our calling as a firm. But from my perspective, I could affect a lot more people and have a much bigger impact if I help develop more leaders within the organization and help more people that I get to see every single day get more of what they want for themselves. Very cool. You're six or seven years in, you know, you built what it sounds like is sort of a, a very healthy side practice. Like your side practice is as big as some people's main practices, even though you're doing it as a side practice and you're getting to this crossroads, like, okay, I think I want to go back fully into the advisor realm. If this is what I can do one day a week, what the, what the heck can I do when I do it five days a week? So, so what, like, what was the size of the practice at that point? And, and just what did you choose? Like what, what came next as you took the plunge? Sure. So when I went independent, it was late 2000. Meaning, but not the 2000s decade, like the year 2000. Yes, ex- year. Okay. exactly. Yep. The, yeah, exactly. The latter part of the year 2000. It was me back then, a junior sales assistant. And we left that cushy management salary and we went and we worked in, Michael, what I call the mezzanine level of my house. You might call it my basement. Right. So, um, okay. So we, I finished my basement. I dug up some earth. We put an outside entry in my basement. So my junior guy, whose name is Evan, who's still with me today and one of our partners actually. And I literally walked out the front door with my briefcase. I walked through the gate in my backyard. I went to the outside entry. I walked down the steps every single day. I did this and I opened up into my lower mezzanine level. We called it because it sounded fancier for clients. And we had about 35 million of assets under management at that point. And it was just Evan and I. And he was just getting licensed. He was probably in his, you know, very early twenties back then. And that's, you know, quite frankly, Michael, not to get too far ahead of the story, but that's when we started to develop relationships with accounting firms, which is something that I saw some of the advisors that I coached were, were having some success with. And that's when we built our first CPA relationship back in, in uh, actually early 2001 by the time we built it. So I had 35 million assistant. Add Karasek, how many, how many clients was that? Because I'm assuming 
at the time, like this was still a a fairly high volume of mass affluent clients, particularly because I know that's where Ameriprise has long been focused. So I'm I'm assuming this was a this was a fairly sizable number of clients. Yeah, back then that was probably about 200, 250 clients going back then when a, you know, a $150,000 rollover was dinner worthy conversation with Yeah, yeah that was, uh, <laughs> that's why I, that's why I was wondering. I mean, I, you know, I I started my career at the same time in in early 2000 and like a $100,000 client was a good like good opportunity. Oh yeah, that was that was a good month, right? <laughs> at least yeah. at least a good couple of weeks for sure. Yeah. Okay. So so you take the leap. You're now going out on your own. It's you and Evan working out of the the mezzanine. You're trying to figure out how you're going to grow, and referrals from CPAs seems like a thing. <laughs> so you decide to start going down that road. What comes next? Did, does that does that work for you? Do you keep going down that path, or did you end up on a different road of how to how to grow and bring in clients? Yeah. So we got really. I'm going to say either lucky or we were good or we just work really hard. I'm not sure, but we, we kissed a bunch of frogs, if you will. And then I stumbled on a guy by the name of Ken Serini, who is a dear friend today and still our partner who happened to be a CPA that had his CFP, which was very rare back then. And, you know, think about the timing. This is again, early 2001 and Ken and I began to have a relationship together. He was planning to go at it and start his own financial planning division in-house. In fact, he was doing some of that. And, you know, as you recall, soon to come in 2001 was September 11, 2001. So as Ken and I were in what I would call the courting phase, and I was, you know, working on building that relationship and trying to convince Ken why he shouldn't do it on his own and he should outsource it. 9-11 occurred, markets reacted, and Ken quickly decided that while his clients needed financial planning advice, he was not the right guy to give it. And it started a, a beautiful relationship together with Ken. And you know that really helped us to spearhead a process that I knew nothing about what the process should look like back then, of course. But Ken and I kind of through trial and error figured out what worked and what didn't work in helping to build awareness within his CPA firm clientele on how to introduce wealth management and financial planning to his clientele. Okay. So, so it sounds like this is, this is going deeper than just, I built a relationship with the CPA so that we can you know, cross refer some, some clients back and forth. Ken was a, an accountant with an accounting practice, wanted to do more financial planning services and stuff for clients. 9-11 happened, realized maybe you didn't want to literally do it hands-on within the firm. So so a relationship starts forming between the two of you. I guess I'm just wondering, like, what does this look like? I mean, are, are we still ultimately talking about some kind of cross-referral relationship? Or is this a deeper thing of like, you know, he's operating as a solicitor and you've got an ongoing business relationship or, or something else where like advisory is embedded within their accounting firm? Like what, what formulated out of this? Yep. No, great question. And, and Ken was a bit of a pioneer, right? So he, he had a vision back then, like I did, that when a financial advisor and a CPA work together for the betterment of the client, that ultimately the client gets a more holistic and better overall advice package. So Ken was willing to get licensed. So believe it or not, I sponsored Ken. He got a Series 7 back then, his Series 63. 
back then. I think it's the 66 these days and his life accident and health. And at the time, my broker dealer didn't have a professional alliance program like we do today. In fact, I helped build that program and consulted them on how to build it. But they did allow a CPA to get fully licensed and share in compensation. So that first, that first, yeah, that first relationship, Ken and I built a partnership and decided that, that we were going to build awareness within his client base. And like I said, he was a bit of a pioneer. And our first year together, we acquired over 50 new clients and really interesting statistic. We met 52 prospective clients and 50, I think it was 49 or 50 of them actually became clients. So two or three people said no to us. And that was when I realized, Michael, that this relationship that clients have with their CPA firms is something kind of special. And yeah. I should spend a little more time on that. Yeah, you know, there's nothing like doing doing a little experiment and getting like a 98% close rate and being like, maybe we should do more here. Yeah, this we, we figured we were onto something pretty good. So again, I just want to make sure I understand the context. So Ken's got like an existing accounting firm, existing client base, has been doing this for a while, says... I want to do more of this financial planning stuff, but hey, I don't think I want to do all of it in the house because I just watched 9-11 and that looks stressful. So, you know, from Ken's end, like I'm going to partner with Jonathan Cutton. I'm going to get licensed under his broker dealer, under American Express Financial Advisors. That lets you, I guess, functionally like to do split cases for the business that Ken's bringing in that you're working with him on. And then you end up building essentially a, a split book of clients or a, or a book of split clients of joint Jonathan and Ken, the CPA clients. Exactly right. And our roles were were defined. I was the financial advisor. Ken was the CPA. He would make the introductions. We'd ensure that my advice integrated tax planning. And once a year, once the client you know signed on to, to have us as their advisor, Ken would join us every year in at least one meeting to ensure that the tax planning and the investment side of the planning were integrated together. Okay. And and out of curiosity, like what's what's the case split on that? How do you structure that? Yeah, back then with Ken, I was just so darn happy, Michael, that he said yes. We just said, hey, let's make this a 50-50 partnership together. And okay. we split all the revenue 50-50 and we split all of the expenses 50-50 you know, to run the business. And over, over time, you know, just to kind of fast forward a little bit, we, we generally build our relationships today in more of a solicitor's arrangement than a fully licensed arrangement with CPAs. And the splits look a lot different today. Okay. Well, I know we're going to talk about this more later, but like, what, what do you think of as appropriate splits today when you, when you think about these like CPAs that refer relationships in and then your advisory firm that works with them? On the advice end itself. Yeah, g- generally our kind of standard way of doing business is on a solicitor's arrangement on the fee-based ADV type business. And it, it's generally 20% as a payout rate for the business that the CPA firm and we partner on together. Very interesting. So so you start down this road, you get you get the first deal with with Ken. It goes really well. <laughs> So what what happens next? Like I'm, I'm sort of imagining this, like, oh my gosh, this is awesome! Like, let's go find one more, two more, three more, five more, ten more CPAs and just keep replicating this. Got it. We cold called our way, talked to every one of our client CPAs, and I probably for a solid three years I drove around Long Island, sitting in 
very nondescript, very messy CPA offices having a lot of doors slammed on me. And I realized quickly that not everyone was quite the pioneer that Ken was. But with that being said, with some consistent and persistent pursuit, you know, fast forward to today, we work with about 75 CPA firms as a firm that are actively engaged in some level of true, what I would call partnership or alliance together with our firm. And, you know, to put in perspective, in the past 12 months as a firm, we've brought in somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 new clients from our CPA partners that for us are in segment, which is really somewhere between, say, a quarter of a million and five million of investable assets. Most of our clients are in what I would call the five to five space, 500,000 to five million of investable assets. And, you know, today, and we can talk through this if you'd like, we've got a business development team that runs those relationships. I'm happy to share. I'm not driving around sitting in CPA's office anymore every day. I've got a team that is really, really good at that and does that for the firm. I'm just kind of processing that because 75 CPA firms, a lot, a lot of firms, a lot of relationships. So, so you just end up with this huge network of CPA firms who are all in, in some kind of partnership solicitor arrangement who are referring the business, get a small slice of the, the fees for having brought the relationship. And then you end out with a team that you know, takes the clients, works with the clients, services the clients, and that's kind of the growth formula. Yep, big, big part of it. Absolutely. I think to even add a little color to that, one of the things that we really started to do probably over 10 years ago is specialize. Generally, the context that I use is finders are the folks who prospect and find the business. So in our world, that's our business development people and our business development people find the CPA firms, right? And we'll talk about this later as well, or find potentially succession planning targets, but they find the CPA firms and help create lead flow for prospects who are the right candidates to actually meet with us. And then our minders come in who are generally our advisors we don't call them minders, of course, but their job is to drive the client experience, right? Their job is to ensure that the clients have an amazing experience with our firm embedded through financial planning advice, embedded through generally fee-based asset management and a, a very descript, well-thought-out, detailed client service system and plan, which is kind of made to, quote-unquote, delight the client, win all the wallet share, and create a referable client experience. So they'd like to introduce us to friends and family. And then our grinders are really our administrative support and power planners, right? The folks who are out there that are you know doing all the hard work of scheduling meetings and prepping meetings and putting together financial plans and proposals and making trades, so on, et cetera, sending summary letters, and what I found is, you know, I'm a big Dan Sullivan strategic coach and I like John Maxwell and I'm a big podcaster, including your podcast, as I mentioned. Yeah, we want to put people in the right seat on the bus, right? And what's their highest, best use? And what we found is if folks can focus on being unbelievably good at being either a finder, a minder, or a grinder in our system, we get far superior results and it's way clearer so that they can do their job extremely well. So kind of two follow-up questions for, for this. One, just kind of understanding the process. I, I'm thinking particularly in terms of the this the CPAs. Like I understand the CPAs essentially 
source the business, right? They they provide an introduction of a client that may mutually benefit by our joint services because they're an accounting client, but they could use financial planning, wealth management services. Who does, I guess, just I think of it, the sale, the close, like the actual, here is what our advisory firm provides. Would you like to sign up and become a client and sign on the dotted line to engage us? Like, who does the actual sale? Is that still part of the finder or is that part of the minder? Like, dear advisor, if you want to get service this client, you do have to convince them to come on board. Like, we're going to hand them to you, but you do have to convince them to come on board. So where does the sale happen? Great question. So it happens through the advisor or the minder. We've got, I'll call it tiers of advisors, right? So to really kind of get into the detail and get get kind of, you know, under the hood and or how the sausage is made, I guess, as they yeah. like to say. So we what we've done in our organization over the last couple of years, right, or a few years, actually, over three years now, is we've actually divided client service and client onboarding, right? So believe it or not, Michael, we had the, you know, the best problem in the world. We were growing too quickly because we got really good at developing business through CPAs and we were inorganically growing the business through acquisitions and, and tuck-ins, et cetera. So about three years ago, really what we did internally in the business is we sort of separated. We went out and, and actually hired from the outside and in some cases repositioned people on the inside, right? And said to our existing advisors who were already minding a mature book of business, at one point, they were also bringing in new clients from our CPA partnerships on top of running their existing book of business. And it, okay. it got to a point where it was it was really hard to give the quality we wanted to our existing clients and onboard so many new clients. So we separated and we basically said to our existing advisors, the client base that you have today is yours to run. The firm's going to continue to support you. We're going to run a particular client service model. And we've developed that together as a team that we believe will create an unbelievable experience to the client. But no more new clients will be coming in from our business development team because we want to make sure that we are organically growing that end of the business, the existing clientele. What we then did is every new client that came into the firm came through a different team of advisors. And we've got what I will call a, a more senior advisor who is quite good at winning new business. And then we've got a service servicing advisor who's quite good at building relationships and servicing business. So every time a new prospective client comes in, we meet that prospective client as a team. So if you can picture it, Michael, you've got two advisors, right, sitting in cross uh, today, this is obviously done on video, right? But for effect, sitting across from a client and his or her spouse in the conference room, right? And the key part here is we've got the CPA sitting at the head of the table, right? And one of my advisors has been extraordinarily good in that room at telling our story and winning new business. And the servicing advisor is there to be the relationship manager going forward. And this is explained to the client how we work. It's a team approach and the pros of that, et cetera. And if you can imagine the CPA, his or her job is super important because really what the CPA's job is to transfer their goodwill or, or what I call the borrowed trust that they have with their client to my advisors and to our practice. So 
as that meeting goes on, we present who we are, our value proposition, how we work, what the service model looks like, what the cost of doing business is. Generally, at the end of that meeting, the prospective clients, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, look over at their CPA. Their CPA generally nods their head and says, yes, I trust them. They're my advisor. They work with many of my clients. The client says yes, and we kind of go through the process. So it strikes me then, and and as you were kind of talking about sort of specialization, separation of roles. So, so many firms, I think the traditional mold is, you know, you, you, you prospect for the clients, you close the clients, you service the clients. And the more, and if you want to make more money by having more clients to service, I suggest you go find more and close them. Right. And, and like, essentially we all build our own books of business. Your model looks very different in that you've got this essentially kind of prospecting machine, all these relationships with CPAs who refer business as solicitors and and even a team that finds the CPAs as part of the business development role. By the time it even gets the advisors, there, there really is no prospecting. There's just, here is a very, very warm lead from a trusted relationship who's going to literally be in the room with you and give you the nod. But you do have to explain what you do and, and, and close them again on board. And even there, when you get to that moment, there's really two advisors in the room, one who has more of a, a sales and closer skill set who can close the client and gets to stay in a role of doing that. And one who is more skilled at servicing and maybe doesn't have the business development skills and doesn't need them and isn't asked to bring them because their job is just to be the other advice in the room that will do the servicing work for that client going forward. And so the the prospecting and the sales and the client service are, are really ending out as basically three different people in the servicing chain. Michael, you explained that way better than I do. Yes, that's very clear. And okay. I think you're, yes, you, you, you're spot on. And that's, that's exactly how it works. I, I, I like to say what we really look to do as a firm for our advisors, right, is to get them out of the business of prospecting. Right. I, I want that advisor to focus his or her energy on delighting the client, giving an amazing client experience. And what we found is the better we do that, better the business grows organically from winning 100% of wallet share from the client, as well as introductions to friends and family from a referral perspective. And that, you know, that quite frankly, as we separated a few years ago, I think the experience that we've delivered, while it was always very good, it got outstanding. And now what's starting to happen in the business is there's an explosion because we've got these new clients coming in. And because our, our advisors that are relationship managers are able to deliver so well, ultimately we're getting lots and lots and lots of introductions to friends and family and the business is growing organically at a much faster rate than ever before. Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm so struck by what you just said. Like, our effort is to get our advisors out of prospecting. It just that's so striking to me because I think the overwhelming majority of firms that I talk to these days, like their biggest challenge is I'm trying to get my advisors to do more prospecting. And and either like I'm trying to do that and figure out how to how to do that, or I'm trying to do that, but they're not good at prospecting and I, I can't get them to do more business development. I'm trying to figure out how to get them to do more business development and like, what training are you doing? What systems do you have? And uh, you know, we did a, a recent office hours on our, on our platform around advisor compensation and 
literally the majority of all questions were essentially, how do you do bonuses for advisors to get them to do more business development? And just I'm I'm struck that your tack for growth is basically the 180 degree polar opposite direction, which is no, 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 like good advisors just be service-minded advisors. If you want to do more prospecting and business development, you know, go hire people that do business development and ideally get a get a system and strategy about how you do it, for which yours is we build these CPA relationships and, and solicitor arrangements. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, you know, I wish I could say that was always the plan. There was a time I was relying and hoping that I can influence my advisors to prospect as well and do more business development. And what I found is it didn't work, right? right. So, and when you really think about it and you look at advi- the advisor industry in general, the financial advisor industry in general, most advisors stink at prospecting, right? And that's why most advisors have a hard time building a business beyond themselves. Once they get to a million or two in revenue, in essence, you can't do everything yourself, right? right? So you have to make a choice to either have someone else prospect or have someone else serve the clients or continue to have a business that, you know, stays at about that level and can't necessarily, you know, always grow beyond that advisor. So the interesting part is, you know, any statistic I've ever looked at, the number one way that financial advisors grow is through client referrals, right? I mean, if you really think about it, industry-wide, most clients get a handful of referrals a year. I'm sorry, most advisors, I should say, get a handful of new clients a year from introductions to friends and family. So what we've done is we've said, instead of having the advisor trying to go out and figure out how to build their own CPA relationships or be in networking groups or do dinner seminars back in the day or use social media. What we've done is said, hey, why don't you just give an unbelievable experience to your clients, build deep, meaningful relationships. And by the way, ask them in each and every meeting who they know that you can be a value to. You know, as a firm, actually, you know, Michael, I'm sure you know Bill Cates is a pretty big referral coach in the industry. So, you know, we use Bill's program. He's coached our whole organization. Believe it or not, as an organization, every Saturday morning, you heard it, Saturday morning, and I'm there at 9 a.m. Eastern time, we do a referral role play session, old school. We haven't done it forever. We started it about a year ago. And there's about 25 of us every Saturday morning on Zoom or video conference role playing. And amazingly, if you put an effort and energy into something, it seems to bear fruit. And we're getting really, really, really good at it. And it's you know driving an amazing amount of growth. So for the advisors who are in like lead client advising positions, they've got a they've got to come every Saturday morning, like literally every week, like standing appointment, nine a.m. on Saturday mornings. Completely optional. Not okay, and not mandatory at all. If you can make it, okay. you can make it. But I'll share with you, there's about 25 faces every Saturday morning, and they're not there because they have to be. They're they're truly there because they want to be. And you know, it kind of leads us to where you were before. Part of their measures, right, and how they grow their compensation is by organically growing the business, right? So net flows, new money in versus money out, doesn't matter how they get it. If you're running a $100 million book, at the end of that year, right, the goal should be in a healthy business to me, net flows, right, is kind of like 
blood pressure and temperature, right? The health of a business is based on what's coming in versus right. what's going out. And the, you know, the reality of it is we, we look at referrals from CPAs as inorganic growth because the advisor isn't generating that particular client. And we look at referrals from existing clients, winning more outside money from existing clients, natural market, friends and family, things along those lines as organic growth. And if advisors can ring the bell on organic growth, it, it helps their, you know, their compensation and, and their ability to move up through the career ladder of the firm. I think we also look to, I mean, in, internally, Michael, we have, I've talked about leadership before, right? So leadership is one of really probably the, the number one, it's actually leadership is one of our core values and our actual firm's mission statement is that cut and wealth management is not only a Barron's Hall of Fame practice, but we're known industry-wide as a supercharged leadership development factory. We develop what, what we call level five leaders, which is kind of something that we talk about internally. So leadership, developing others, running something for the firm, an initiative, being able to influence others around a common goal. You know, that and organic growth as an advisor at KWM, that's how you move up the ladder. That's how you ultimately get the share, not just in a salary and bonus, but profits of the business that you run and ultimately leads to a, an equity opportunity within the firm. So just out of curiosity, you said like you're trying to build level five leaders. What, what is a level five leader at KWM? Yeah, so so it's interesting. There's two different five levels of leaderships, right? That I'm aware of at least. One is John Maxwell's, right? And one is actually from Ray Kelly, who's our coach. So uh, real real quick lessons on Ray's five level of leadership, which is something that every single person in my organization can talk at at length. And we talk a lot about it because when you have kind of common tools within an organization, it gets really easy to give feedback and help people become more self-aware. A level one leader, Michael, quite frankly, if told to get a job done, they can get the job done. So they can complete a task. Really simple. What a level two leader can do is they can actually do exactly you know, the same thing a level one can do. They can get a task done if asked to and told what to do, but they can also identify a problem. They can see you know, what is the actual problem and actually see that something isn't working well. When you get to level three, and by the way, you know, for the audience, when, when you feel like people keep coming to you with your problem, with their problems that work for you, it means they're probably a level two leader. And, you know, we've got the saying internally, it's, it's, it's the leader, it's the leader, it's always the leader. So it's upon you as the advisor or the, the CEO or the, the main person in your practice to develop the leaders within your organization. So, so what a level three can do is not only can they identify that problem, but they can actually solve it themselves. And man, we love level three leaders, right? Level three leaders don't ask, don't tell you what's wrong. They actually fix the problems within your business. And we've got a lot of level three leaders in our organization. We've worked really hard to get them there because you know it's really helpful when you don't have to be involved in each and every problem because there's lots of problems that we all encounter throughout the day. What a level four leader can do is all the things that a one, two, and three can do but they can actually also influence a group of people around a common goal, which IE basically means help others solve problems, right? So when you've got a level four, Michael, you're cooking with gas. You've got a leader on your team, 
right? And really what you want a level four to be able to do, interestingly enough, it's fresh in my mind because I'm struggling with getting some people from level three to level four. Earlier this morning, I did my coaching session with, with Ray, who I mentioned before. The key to a level four is they should be able to influence that group without any help from you, right? So, you know, what that means is I could be, you know, in Peru for a year and my team should be able to actually help the others in the organization. My leaders should be able to help the others in the organization solve problems without my help and get a whole group to work on that initiative. And then what a level five does, which is what I try to spend all my time on or as much of it as humanly possible, wish I could spend more is a level five actually develops more level fours and fives, and they're able to tie everything back to the mission, the vision, and the values of the organization, right? So when everyone in the organization is tied back to that vision, mission, values, every time that you as a leader speak to your group, all of a sudden, everyone, like I said before, we're all headed Northeast. We all know what we're doing. We all know who comes first in the organization. And we get to solve a lot of problems along the way. So now help us understand. I'd love to just understand more of what the, I guess, what the, what the structure of the firm looks like today. Like what's the asset base, how many clients and what's the actual team structure? Like how many people are there and what does this org chart look like? So I'm trying to sort of cross section, like, there are these tiers of advisors that move up and you've got all these different leaders and leadership development programs. Like I'm just trying to visualize now, what does this look like today in terms of assets and clients and, and team that are serving? Sure. Yeah. So I'll be directionally right on this because I don't, I don't have a matrix in front of me, but we are north of 3 billion of assets under management that we have custody of. We, we really don't do much in the way of institutional. So it's primarily retail. There are approximately 5,500 clients. So if you do that math, average client is right in the neighborhood of 600,000. Some have significantly more, some have significantly less. And what we've gone to, Michael, is the business was built here in New York. You know, that's where, where I founded it 26 years ago now. But we've started to build what I call, we call them beachhead strategies, right? So I've got five leaders in the organization that are in charge of, you know, in some cases, a couple. In some cases, I think our largest is eight advisors. So each of those five beachhead leaders run businesses for the organization. So one was the gentleman I mentioned in his early 20s that used to work in the mezzanine level with me. He runs our largest beachhead which is around 850 million or so of assets doing about seven or 8 million in revenue. He's got seven advisors, uh, not including himself on the team. And then I think our smallest beachhead right now is around 300 million or so of assets doing, you know, around 3 million or so of business with three advisors in total on the team. And then obviously there's three other beachheads. So we've got a large location in Texas. We've got our headquarters here on Long Island. We've got a state of New York, presence and, and beachhead. We've got a uh, business in Florida and in Pennsylvania. So we've started to kind of grow from a, from a geographic perspective a little bit. And then as a firm, there is, in addition to the beachhead leaders who also generally have small client bases, they kind of are player coaches. They might work with 50 to 75 families, but most of their time is leading their team and staff that works within their organization. So in addition to the five of, of them, there's approximately 20 other advisors in the organization as a whole that report into one of those beachheads. 
And then the balance of the team, there's seven folks on our business development team that run our CPA business, help us with talent acquisition, and help us with mergers and acquisitions, which has become a big part of our growth strategy as well. And then the balance of the firm are primarily licensed power planners, a small financial planning department, administrative support, so on, et cetera. And then lastly, one of the things, Michael, that we've done recently is built out an executive team, something I had thought about for a while, but actually part of the the impetus to actually begin to hire leaders that do nothing but lead actually came from one of your podcasts oh, very that cool. I thought, well, yeah, so, and so thank you for that and for all you do for our industry. But I, I, my title is CEO. I've got a gentleman by the name of Jake Dunlap, who is my president, an equity partner in the business. He, he bought into the business. Jake used to be a leader at the broker dealer and ran a, a large percentage of our employee platform, amazing leader and one of the best decisions I've ever made in business because the value he's providing is amazing. I've got a director of business operations and a COO and someone that we're in the process of promoting to we'll call a chief growth growth officer who will continue to help us build out our CPA program, M&A business kind of a social media, email marketing business that is budding and we're getting ready to launch, et cetera. So, you know, long answer. And then you know, part of the team, although they're not necessarily employees, you know, are these roughly 75 CPA firms, right, that are out there looking to create opportunities. So they're almost like, you know, in, in basketball, that sixth man, right? They might not be on the floor all the time, but they're out there, you know, really helping, uh, helping us grow and a big, big part of how we do what we do. And just what's the total staff team headcount, if I just add this up across all the different parts of the organization? There's right around 70 of us in the organization today. Okay. So I I find it striking when I just think about that from kind of a team structure and an allocation of of resources perspective, you know, you've you've got 70 people and seven in business development. So you 10% of your team is in a is in a dedicated business development role, which I, I find striking just in, in general. I, on the one hand, don't see very many firms at all that have 10% of their team in business development. You know, most most firms, if you look at industry benchmarking studies, spend something on the order of one or two percent of their revenue on on marketing and business development. The flip side is what I what I do see is most advisory firms you know, try to encourage their advisors to spend twenty or thirty percent of their time on business development, and you know if I add these up together, you've got twenty five to thirty advisors and seven business developers, which combined is is thirty something people, and about a quarter of those are in business development roles. So it strikes me when 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 I think about it in the aggregate of your business development plus advisors team. You do actually have a similar allocation of time and resources put towards business development. The difference is, I feel like the average firm in your position would have 30 advisors, a quarter of whom spend their time on business development. And you've got 30 people, a quarter of them are business developers, and the other three quarters are are focused on advisory. It's an interesting and different way to carve it up than what most firms do in practice, but I think speaks very directly to the point you were making earlier of like your effort is to get your advisors out of prospecting and focused on client service. 
I like the way you're thinking about that. I've never probably thought about it that way myself. The way you think about 30 advisors, right, doing 75% of their time working with clients and 25% doing business development. I, I think it's worked really well for us because it's clear and it makes the individual, whether it be the BD person or the advisor, it just, it makes their initiatives and their vision and what they do every day much clearer, right? So, you know, I think it's Dan Sullivan who talks about unique ability, right? It's hard to be really good at so many things. And I think, you know, I've coached lots of advisors. I've got a small coaching business as well. I do a lot of interesting things. And I think I find over and over and over again, advisors have the same gripe, right? It's, I can't do everything myself. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be the maitre d' and the chef and the busboy, and it's too much to do. And if you think about it, our industry, independent financial planning practices in particular, we just haven't been around for that long, right? So as you meet some of the larger businesses out there, they usually have a niche or a specialty, right, in something. And if you compare that to a larger firm, I mean, you know, in most firms, isn't there actually, you know, a division of a company that does sales and marketing and a division of a company that does service, right? So why not in a financial planning practice, whether there's three people in it or 30 or 300, why not divide and conquer a little bit? It just makes it clearer. So now help me understand the way that works at the executive team level that, that you're talking about building out. So I, I understand kind of a chief growth officer, like be focused on the marketing and business development. I understand the COO, right? Just we've got this growing span of finance and operations and system stuff that's got to get done. The thing I feel like I probably see the least often, even in advisory firms as they're growing, is a separation of CEO and president, as you'd articulated it. And so I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what does it mean to be a CEO in your organization? And what does it mean to be a president in your organization? And what is the difference between the two? Yeah, great, great question. And in full transparency, we're working through some of that right now. So it's, it's not perfected, but here's what I could share with you. I have this friend, actually, I'll call it friend and business colleague that I've got in a business that I'm a, a shareholder in. The business supports CPA firms and actually helps them to use technology to provide business advisory services, which is neither here nor there. But my partner, his name is Paul Latham, and Paul is brilliant. He's an English guy, and he's got this phrase or this planning concept. He calls it the three ingredients of business success. And the three ingredients of business success, as Paul would say it, vision, plan, and desire. Those are his three words, vision, plan, and desire. And in reality, when he talks about vision, plan, and desire, he actually says, you know, create a vision. Write plans is what he says, write plans, which means, you know, as you dig deeper, have five to seven leading indicators, right? Key performance indicators that are written that will ultimately drive the results. And then desire is self-explanatory, right? It's about measurement and accountability, so on and et cetera. So what Jake, who's our president and I are kind of figuring out is I'm really good with vision, right? That's what I like to do. That's probably my highest and best use is figuring out where are we going to be in five or 10 years. It goes back to that poster I told you about hanging above my bed, right? So I've got a big vision. I'm sure we'll talk about that before we wrap, but you know, we've just scratched the surface on where we'd like to go. And there's a lot, lot to do in order to get there. And 
lots of pieces to that vision. The plan part, I'm actually really good at figuring out what the leading indicators are, but really the place where I see Jake really supporting it is twofold, is ensuring, right, that we are actually working that plan in a quality way and doing things the right way, meaning executing fully, doing, you know, I call it the full rep, right? Not cheating and just doing things right, kind of that one more rep mentality. And I think the other big piece that Jake is spending a lot of his time on is the culture, right? Is really making sure as we've gotten bigger, you know, it, it was it was a lot easier when everyone was here in Long Island. I got to see everyone every day and an occasional breakfast or lunch or chit chat at the, the coffee station. So Jake is really making sure that we are there for all of our people. We're supporting what we call their woody woofy, which stands for what do you want for yourself, which we could hit on to if you'd like, but really making sure that the culture of the firm is in alignment with what we really want to build and what's best for everybody in it. I am curious to go there for for a moment. Your woody woofy, what do you want? What do you want for yourself? You you had talked about career tracks earlier as well. Like you you your focus on developing leadership, your focus on supporting organic growth. It seems like organic growth plus leadership equals promotions plus equity at KWM. So can you talk to us a little bit more? Like, how does this, how does this work? Like, how do you move up in the organization? Yep. Yeah. Great questions. I, I think you hit me with a couple in there. So Woody Woofy, they give credit is from Doug Lennock, right? Who I mentioned before, Think to Perform. And it stands for what do you want for yourself? So all 70 of our people go through an annual Woody Woofy process. It's probably the greatest thing that I've ever done. And the, the funniest part about it, like most things, I did this in 1994, by the way. I went through my own Woody Woofy and had a leader go through it for me, right? I then did it for others. And then it worked so well and it was so effective for about 12 years, we just stopped doing them like we all seem to do. But we got back into doing Woody Woofies probably four or five years ago. But it's really a simple process to help the people and your folks get clear on their own core values, right? So, you know, what are the five core values that are important to you as a human being? Right. And for a lot of people, they might be things like health, family, integrity, security, happiness, right? Things like that. So our firm has core values. They're leadership, family, integrity, security, and happiness. And each and every employee in the firm could tell you that off the top of their head. But you go through core values in a Woody Woofy, and then it's really an exercise to help the leader understand what's important to that employee, both from a personal perspective, personal growth perspective, a business perspective, what they'd like to accomplish in business, and also kind of from a like a personal development perspective, right? So as an example, I could tell you, Michael, that my receptionist wants to make sure that she does yoga twice a week and starts to meditate. Now, you think about that, and if you're an advisor or leader of the financial services organization, you know, ask yourself the question, do you actually know what the people that work for you actually have in their own personal lives, right? So I know one of my employees is really into coaching his son's little league team. So if I happen to see him in the office past five o'clock on a Tuesday night, I know in the springtime, that's baseball time. And if he's got a late night appointment, I'm going to make sure that he gets home so that he could go to his little boy's little league game. When you start to get connected that way, 
be amazed when you listen and you ask the right questions, how much you'll learn about your people. And, you know, again, another stalling saying, if you haven't figured it out, I don't have a lot of original thoughts. I, I, I read them or listen to them in podcasts, right? But people, you know, as those who follow you don't really care, right, what you know until they know that you care. And, you know, when you start to install things like that in a systematic way and do them consistently in your business, you start to build relationships, you start to understand what makes people tick. And then if you can help them make progress on those things, ultimately, you build a very, very, you know, loyal group of followers and you build a culture where people really care about the people within the organization. So my proudest accomplishment, Michael, and we've been blessed, team effort, by the way, to you know, get lots of accolades and awards and all that in the industry. But this year, we actually got recognized by Investment News as one of, I think there were 75 firms recognized nationally as one of the best places to work in the financial services industry. And that comes from employees being randomly going through a random survey and talking about what's great about working for the organization. So that's my proudest accomplishment, right? Giving people a culture and ecosystem where they're growing, not just their incomes and becoming better financial advisors or business development or administrative power planners, et cetera, but they're actually becoming better human beings because of the leadership that the firm is actually growing within the organization. And you know, to answer the second part of your question from a career track perspective, you know, our model is really simple for, I would say, the professional positions within the firm to grow your role as a financial advisor or as a business development person. And it, you know, it starts from a staff to, you know, licensed power planner, junior advisor, advisor, senior advisor, so on, et cetera. But the reality of it is, is we are in essence looking for advisors, right? To provide the client the experience that, you know, that we as a firm have agreed would be would be the right experience to give the best value that we can from the client and give them that kind of wow experience as they drive results. And the results are a combination of running what I call the play, right? Meaning running our service model the right way so that client satisfaction is high. And then tangibly looking at, well, how has the business grown because you're running that service model and because of the personality and the relationship skills and, and financial advisory skills that you bring to the table. Ultimately, our comp's real simple. Most advisors are, are, are start in a 100K type base salary position, some more, some less, but as an average. And then 30% of their base compensation is available as a bonus to them each and every year. And that 30% is based on tangible criteria. Usually 80% of it is tangible, like net flows, like revenue growth, like client satisfaction. And then 20% of it is usually subjective. What does your beachhead leader and executive team think about your performance, your contributions, initiatives you've taken on, leadership, et cetera. And then ultimately, that once that bonus is earned, half of that bonus becomes a pay raise. So if you made 100K, you had a $30,000 bonus potential, you earned 20,000 of it. The next year, your salary would go to 110. Your bonus potential would be 33,000, right? 30% of 110, so on, et cetera. And once the advisors met some tangible growth initiatives through growing the asset base and the revenue base, we ultimately give them the ability to keep a piece of the profits 
of the business that they're running for the firm. And then after there's some additional growth initiatives that are actually made, at that point, they get the opportunity to purchase at a discounted rate a piece of the equity of the vertical of the business that they run for the firm, where the firm, if necessary, will provide financing for a loan and hold a note, so on, et cetera. And from there, for really high performers, there's opportunities to build and grow their own beachhead, so on, et cetera. Interesting. So comp is heavily salary-based, moves up around bonuses, around sort of the the metrics you, at least I kind of expect, right? Net flows, retention rate, satisfaction rate. You know, your your bonuses become, or part of your bonus becomes your base next year. So you can climb over time if you're, and you'll climb faster if you're hitting your your numbers faster. Equity is tied more directly to growth, to making growth appear, not air quotes, just, not just servicing your clients well and retaining them well, which gets you a good, a good salary, but that's, that's what gets you salary. Equity is tied to growth. Yep. I'd say growth, developing others, right? Or doing some other projects for the firm that could be valuable as well. Yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Most of our advisors, Michael, on average, are in a position that they're earning a really nice living. You can kind of spreadsheet that out, right? And, we, and we've done that. That if, you, if you're running, most of our advisors run about 100 to 130 million as a book of business, which in our practice is usually about 200 families or so, which we find is the right, the right number of clients to run our service model. Ultimately, if you do a good job, a B or a B plus, you get to you know quarter of a million dollars of, of income pretty quickly. And if you can grow it quickly, you know, one of the benefits are if you can develop others, we will put junior advisors underneath you, put them in the ecosystem, we'll ask you to help support their growth and development, and it allows you to continue to almost infinitely scale a business if you've got that skill set to do it. So so as you look back over this journey over the past twenty odd years of of building of Guess what? What basically is about a hundred x growth in in twenty years, right? From from a little over thirty million to a little over three billion. What surprised you the most about what it takes to build and scale an advisor enterprise? Whew, that's a tough question. Lots of surprises along the way. I think you know some that that stick out to me is I think advisors underestimate how hard you need to work, right? And, you know, it sounds great. I've got, you know, dozens of stories of things that didn't go well, right? So we hit a lot of the things that did go well in my 26-year career. We've had trials and tribulations. We've got our issues with employees. We've made wrong hires. I've had advisors leave and take assets. I've had CPA relationships go bad. So we've all had trials and tribulations, right, throughout the business. But, you know, from my perspective, I think the most, you know, surprising part for me is how quickly things compound, right? And I think advisors don't do the best job of kind of, myself included, of smelling the roses. Like when you just said, Michael, 100 times growth, right, over 26 years, I think is what you said. I don't think about it that way, right? I think, I think, you know, what am, what am I going to get accomplished here in 2021 and 2022 and 23, et cetera? So I think that's what would surprise is take a look back at where you were 10 years ago. What was your AUM there? What was your, you know, your revenue there? How many folks worked in the organization, in your organization? And the other part that I would just share is how desperate I think the industry is for leadership. 
And I, I think, you know, I get asked at conferences and things sometimes, kind of like, what's your secret ingredients? What's the secret sauce? And I answer it the same way. It's leaders developing leaders, right? You, you can only accomplish so much with your own skill set, right? And when you start to think about developing others, you can multiply your skill set. So that's how I look at it. I've got, you know, 70 people that the better I develop them and the more resources that fertile soil that I talked about, once you start to actually invest in people and you are genuinely interested in them growing, right? And that's, I think, the big thing about leadership. When you're trying to build a business so you could make more profits for yourself or you could work less time or simply be more efficient, the people in your organization feel that and they don't necessarily have a career track. And I can share that from experience because as I, I don't know if I articulated it really well earlier, but there was a time when I, this business was about me, right? And, you know, it was what one of my coaches had once said to me, he called it, it was a John says culture, right? And what that means in English is everyone look for me to every decision, right? And John might not want to do it that way. I don't want to talk to John about compensation, et cetera, et cetera, right? And what I've worked really hard on, because it's actually not my natural DNA, is to make the business really what we call a vision-based culture, right? Which is really about where are we going as a firm? How are we as a firm going to win? How are the people in the organization going to hit their own woody woofies and get what they want for themselves? And what I found is when you do that, people work a lot harder when they actually feel like they're part of the decision-making and part of not necessarily looking at it and saying, you know, what's actually best. We don't want, we don't necessarily want to be the best firm that does the most revenue and grows the quickest, right? We want to be the best for the people who work in the firm and the best for our clients. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Great question. I would say I had a really bad experience about five or six years ago. I won't use names, but I built a partnership with a very large accounting firm. And we had a lot of success together quickly, grew 150 million plus of assets over a couple of years. And they decided that they could do it on their own and didn't necessarily think that we were the right partner. And the learning I had from that, Michael, is I didn't have the greatest agreement in place. And they they vanished and took lots of clients and lots of assets. Mm. And I felt pretty foolish there and, you know, quite frankly, let down my team because there were folks who, you know, were growing and their careers were going in a great direction because of the relationship they brought in and the clients that came in and why why we made good on all of it with our employees and they're still here. That was one that really hurt, to be honest. What was the lesson in in retrospect? You know, I mean, the, the lesson is probably, which goes against my DNA. I'm a very trusting guy and kind of, you know, as I said before, one of my number one values is integrity, right? So my handshake is generally my bond. And obviously we have agreements and document things, et cetera. But unfortunately, it's to trust, you know, trust less in some scenarios and make sure that you kind of, as you grow, you're doing it in a way that you're, you've got the right protections in place and, you know, kind of the old adage of measure twice, cut once, right? I think would be the right way to, to kind of wrap that up. As you look back at this, like, what do you know now about what it takes to build an enterprise that you wish you could 
go back and tell you from 20 years ago when you you moved into the mezzanine level and and started this journey? You know, I, I think it's probably cliche, but hire quickly, right? And lead people, right? I, I did a lot on my own back and work and worked my butt off and lots of hours and lots of blood, sweat, and tears to build the business. Not that I'd have it any other way. And, you know, one of my values is hard work. And I, I think hard work is in today's society, sometimes a dirty word, right? I, I think it's okay to work really, really hard if you want something. I try to teach my kids that as well. And, and everyone who works in the organization, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would have hired an executive team quicker. I would have invested in leadership quicker within the organization and would have would have likely gone out and kind of engaged with some coaches a little bit quicker than I did. I thought I had it all figured out myself. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think I, I did have a good vision of where I was going, but I think it's good to ask for help. You know, my second or third quote here of Dan Sullivan, right? He's got this great book. I recommend everyone read it. It's called Who Not How. I don't know if you've read it yet, Michael. Yes, I have. It's fantastic. It's my life. It's all I do. It's all I think about. And who not how is just a fancy way to talk about delegation. You know, it's just a different way to say it, but it's kind of like you don't know, you don't have to know how to do everything yourself. You just need people who are really good at it, that love it and point them in the right direction and let them make what you can do even better. And that's what it's about. Building a enterprise, a true enterprise is not about you. <laughs> it's, it's actually about the people that you serve, meaning your clients. And it's about the people that you serve, meaning the people who are kind enough to show up every day to work and work really hard for the organization you're trying to build together. So what comes next for you? I mean, here, here's, here's our goals, Michael. And you know, they say if you tell everybody, so I guess this is a good way. Yeah. You know, There's nothing like declaring it on a, on a podcast to be like, well, now I have to do it. Yes, exactly. Where, where we're headed in, in eight years, you know, there's a lot that I'll share. One is we'd like to be a $12 billion business in eight years. So basically quadruple roughly the size of the business. And that probably means we're doing about a hundred million a year in revenue based on kind of our metrics today. In order to do that, we will likely have somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 folks in the organization. And my real goal is I'd like to get to a point in the next eight to 10 years where half of the folks who work within the organization actually own a small piece of the organization and have a have an equity piece and that all of their hard work, all of their dedication and grit and perseverance not only helps them, you know, earn an amazing income and have a great, you know, place to work and all the personal development, but also gets them to monetize the equity side of the business as well and truly, you know, get to a point where where we're able to accomplish that. And is that a, a substantively different formula or path or is that simply like we are on a good track? We just got to keep the compounding and momentum going and, and just keep chugging forward in the same direction. Yeah, I, I think that's our path. I think that's, that's, you know, I said Northeast a few times. That's Northeast. That vision's been shared with the team. That's where we're, where we're looking to go. And I, I would just say, you know, to me, the biggest threat, and it's the thing I probably work hardest on as we grow, is doing it with the right culture, right? I think we've heard the saying, right? Culture eats strategy, right? Or I think that's, is that the saying? Culture eats strategy, right? Or beat strategy. 
Yeah, cold, cold treat strategy for breakfast. For breakfast, yep. For, uh, yep, that was the 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 end there. Yeah, I, and I think that's that's the us. It it's making sure we hire good human beings, we treat them really well, we we develop them really well, and we ensure that the culture stays on the same path it is. Where we've got lots of happy people that are making progress. And it's one of my big learnings, Michael, is if if you keep making little steps forward as an individual. It's really easy to be happy, right? It's when you're standing still or going backwards and you're not striving to get better that you start to get really frustrated and get into a bad spot. So as we as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes is always just that even the word success means means different things to different people. And so you've had this incredible growth path with the success of the business itself. And, and talked a little bit about the business growth goals. But I am wondering now, as, as, as we finish, like, how do you define success for yourself at this point? It's a great, great question. It's, it's really impacting others, you know, so not, not to be corny, but I talked a little bit about, you know, kind of my calling, right? I get my satisfaction, you know, two ways. My family, right? I've been happily married for 23 years and my wife is the best lady I know. And I've got four sons. You know, two of them are actually planning to come into the business and they're both, you know, in college now and bright young men that are eager to get into the business as well. So, you know, I, I think about that a lot, actually. You know, we talked before about five levels of leadership, right? John Maxwell's five level of leadership, that fifth level, I think he calls pinnacle, right? Which is in essence, when you're just touching, right? Lots and lots and lots of human beings and helping them get better and helping improve their lives. So, you know, from our clients to the folks that work in the organizations, I mean, I think we, we, we have a goal to touch millions and millions of lives in a positive way. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me. And like I had said to you earlier, I think you're, you're out there touching a lot of lives yourself. So thanks for uh, all the good work that you do for our industry. Oh, thank you. Our pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.